Wallace to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Mallcast. Good evening. Good evening. Uh, we'll start with uh, Leinster's win away in Glasgow and the text message that went around our WhatsApp group afterwards was Will O'Connor equals Ireland's number seven question mark. Was there a question mark? I think it was Will Connors as well. Well, <laughs> John Connor. I, don't I, I do think of John Connors. I constantly think of... Give me your clothes, your boots, and your motorcycle. Even though he never said that to John Connors, I always think, yeah, of the Terminator. So, is he going to be Ireland's next number seven? He's going to skip the queue ahead of Scott Penny, ahead of Josh Vanderfleer. I don't think he'll skip Josh Vanderfleer, who's been in great form. Um, he was outstanding against Leon. But um, certainly his performances have been really excellent. I think his, um, I, I saw him. I saw him a couple of seasons ago in a preseason game. It was the first time I'd seen him uh, outside age grade rugby. I saw him sort of up close. It was in Donnybrook. Really impressed with, it. you know, his general movement around the pitch. How many involvements he gets. How frequently he's where the ball is. And he's got a very good balance, which is underrated in forwards. But um, you know he times his pass as well he offloads an awful lot uh for for any sort of fort um he's a real natural he's very impressive very impressive he's also a very tall dude in real life you know i've i've um i've sorry i've stood next to him um and like he's he's a legit six four and a half six five you know, was that 198 centimeters? 195, Seven, 196, something 196. like that. Uh, he's a very, um, he's 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 a big guy, and you know I think the the sort of his the key attribute which people are focusing on at the moment is is uh, is tackling, especially his tackle height, how quickly he can change levels and how quickly he drops his hips. Um, and Murray Kinsa wrote a very good article about it, but I think that's really. Um, just one element of of why he's so good. He's got a good rugby intelligence about him, and you know he's not a stereotypical open side because of his height. Like Scott Penny looks like, you think Byron's next open side is going to look like, because uh, he just looks like a, a, an open side straight out of the packet. But uh, the the player that Will Connors reminds me of, and it's a very high praise, but I, I always think that you would look at outstanding players that has templates rather than just average players is uh, is Richard Hill the current English manager and great English blindsight I, th- I think it's a matter of beauty being in the eye of the beholder because I would pick him ahead of Josh van der Fleer. would I you know how soon would I do it next week uh, I think it's a selection I think it's a legit selection headache I know how well Van der Fleer played uh, Ian Leon in the Heine- or in the Heineken Cup match, which is which is different standard of rugby. But um, Will Connors and you know we were chatting about it just beforehand. Um, I can't remember a Leinster player anyway having that sort of impact uh, in the back row, sort of as as towards the inception of his career I certainly knew Levy was coming in sorry in a Pro 14 match so uh, Levy came on for Leinster against Exeter he wasn't unheralded or anything like this wasn't a shock but he came on for Sean O'Brien and you were kind of going oh man like Shawnee big loss you know hiding cup match and then by the end of the match you were going Jesus that was great Levy was the best player in the park um, but the two guys then I was thinking of from Pro, te- pro 14 point of view were uh, Sam Underhill and uh, Tipperick both of whom played for the Ospreys uh, different matches um, both against Leinster which is probably 
the reason that I saw them. Um, Tipperick captained an Ospreys team that either lost narrowly or, or won. That came over like really, really young um, and gave Leinster a hell of a game. And then Underhill played for an Ospreys team at home and just spent the entire match in Johnny Sexton's face while he was a teenager. And you're kind of going, Jesus, like, this guy is qualified for Wales or England or America. Um, but, I mean, to, to my mind, had international rugby players stamped all over him. Now, I think even just, just a few weeks ago, I was looking at uh, Tom Curry and on Underhill playing as, you know, a pair of pair of open sides. And I think the, the comparison with Richard Hill, um, Hill just started his career for England at open side uh, and finished it at blind side, you know, and like played a bit of number eight now and again mm. when required, like, because he was, he was capable of doing it. Um, but again, England, you know, that, that sort of model of having guys who can play, having two sevens rather than two sixes. So rather than having Haskell and Joe Worsley, forget. No, Rob, no, Shaw. The, Rob Shaw, the, the two six and a halfs that you have two guys who can actually play seven playing in your back row. Um, and you know, that like the composition of your back row and the balance, uh, is there's different roles that have to be filled in, so um, it's, a, it's pretty a discussion for another time, but uh, certainly to my mind, he looked like an international. Uh, and for me, it was the tackling that stood out, uh, first and foremost. Like He stopped Nico Matawalu with one tackle, definitely. Uh, it's probably two hits, in, but he stopped Matawalu one-on-one, and like Matawalu is one of, the, like, one of, if not the best runner in the Pro 14. Like He's so tough. He's so quick, he's so aggressive, balanced, uh, that he never, no one ever seems to get him first time and stop him offloading. Matawalu always seems to have the upper hand of that contact, and Connors just dropped him. And he got one on, was Dunbar playing number eight? No. uh, Whoever the the, sort of the preeminent Glasgow back, I thought it was Dunbar, but uh, I stand to be corrected. And, just really impressed me. Um, is there a significance to be drawn from a Leinster team that seemed almost like, I mean, it's 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 the one that in the off week of the four out of five weeks that have um, Heineken Cup games, and they play this much rotated team, not featuring nearly any nearly any of the internationals at the, who came from the World Cup. Is there much significance in them beating? Glasgow away yeah, or, do I think we, so. or do we just take it as Glasgow might be on a bit of a downward slump at the moment well yeah Glasgow haven't had a great start to the season but it's a hell of a it's a hell of a good win going away to Glasgow like it was a good uh, strong uh, it was a strong Glaswegian team with Swinson and Johnny, Johnny Gray. Gray in the second row uh, it was Ryan Wilson was Ryan Wilson Chris yeah, Vissaro yeah. Rob Harley in the back row yeah. like, that's a good pack Ali Price playing scrum half. Yeah, so it was a super win for Leinster. It was, uh, it was one of the one of the well, I would say actually just the best win of the season for them thus far, given given the team that Leinster put out, um, which is you know relatively young. Obviously, there was experience in there with with uh, Dev Toner, especially uh, Michael Bent as well. But you know that was a, that was a young side and. They looked really good now. They had an iffy start, but they got right back into it. And then um, they scored two excellent tries. Really, two really crisp tries. And then put in a second half performance, uh, which is as tough as any uh, performance that they put in this season. So I felt it was a real credit to the players on the pitch to the coaching staff as well, obviously. And, um, yeah, really a great win, a super win. You know, I think if you contrast it to the youngish uh, Munster side that played against Edinburgh in in Cork on the Musgrave pitch, um, like, that's, that's a home game. And, you know... They lost that one. Like I know that's just stating the obvious, but I think if you go, they're similar enough strengths aside in comparison to the strength of the squad. 
Um, and you know, both playing Scottish teams, both playing you know strong Scottish teams. One's an away win, one's a home home loss. Yeah, and and to deny Edinburgh the bonus point, I suppose, like from a sort of a Gibson Park and Michael Bench, like Michael Bench qualifies through ancestry, Gibson Park qualifies through residency. Res- residency. But they're both qualified Irishmen, and the other thirteen were Irish guys and young Irish guys at that, with the the exception of Devon Toner. And it, so why is that significant? Like, there's there's no easy, like obviously easiness. He was retired, but like there's no easiness. where there's no Scott Fardy. There's no Joe Tamani. Like there's there's no sort of international like going back before that. Like Ali Larue. Yeah, no senior Rocky bro Elson, holding Felipe hands. Pony. Like there, there's no. Uh, like high grade international who is going to be setting the tone. So that, that's why, to, to my mind, it was very significant that the, you mentioned Dev Toner. Dev Toner played really well. Like, but Dev, Dev's got, has he got 60? He's just 50 something, oh, definitely. For, 60 caps. 60 yeah. something caps, yeah. For So you, like, you expect him to play well. And he did. Uh, but, but Connors, as we've talked about, and Doris were the best players. And like Keen Kelleher played well to finish off his tries and playing left wing rather than whereas again, like if you compare it to Munster, Jack O'Donoghue was one of the eye catching under twenties um during sort of that five year stretch going from like say 2012 to 2017. And he looked he looked all right. He and he looked like, like he looks like most guys look when they're young and they're cutting their teeth and they're not um, I don't know who's got two caps they're not steady internationals mm-hmm. they look like you know a 6 out of 10 all the time he won man the match in that game yes I heard Stringer gave him to that and I couldn't like, how can you give it to the guy in the, on the losing team but like he, he to my mind look I, I agree to disagree but um, you know I, I don't, like I'm focusing on O'Donoghue for that reason because as an under twenty, he looked class. Like he was, he was captain, and he looked the best player in the pitch in, or one of the best players in the pitch in every game that that under twenties team played. Whereas you look at Connors and Doris, and Don- Doris was the captain of his team as well, and they were the main influence on that match. Like the Edinburgh team had a lot of internationals, yeah. But so did the Glasgow yeah, team. Big so, played. Um, That's the difference. though. So it was it was a really good win. I thought that um, I thought the Connor like I again you're sort of you go towards your biases. Uh, I like Connor O'Brien. I thought he played well. I was impressed with how quickly he got up off the ground after making tackles. Like he made a lot of tackles, but I thought he popped up well. Um, and Hugo Keenan was very impressive. Yeah, that was the other thing I was going to mention was that Hugo Keenan, mm. Jimmy O'Brien, and Will Connors all played for the Ireland Sevens team last year like two seasons ago but in in the hong kong and the hong kong sevens one so like the big one where you're going for qualification for the worlds as did robert balakun who played for ulster started for ulster uh the same night shane daly did he play in that one sorry friday night and shane daly started on the friday as well for munster so five out of that 13 man squad from two seasons ago are now playing are starting provincial matches and to go back to Connors, I thought that Connors got in the line well. I thought he threw a pass in the build-up. Beautiful Keller's pass. try. But, it, like, they didn't look to be anything about it. He just came into the line, timed his run, straightened, threw his pass, and he could play football. So, you know, there's sort of a question mark over sevens and what's the value if they're only going to be sevens players. But if guys are going to graduate into a 15-man game, I just think given the playing population of Ireland, that if you can mix sort of exclusive sevens players, and there are guys like Billy Dardis being the obvious one um, as captain of that team. But like Kennedy from Mary's is a guy who's constantly on the team. Conroy from, is it Conway, Conroy or Conway Conroy. from Bucks? Conroy. Conroy, Conroy from yeah. Bucks. Um, and the other fella, Harry uh, McNulty. McNulty. Um, with guys who are who are going to be playing 15s for you, who come back with whatever it is, like holding their lines, the ability to pass, uh, effective tackle technique, because you've got to execute one on one. It's a good, it's a, it's a, it's a really good program. It might be the best thing that Noosa Four has done in Irish rugby. I agree. I think it is a really interesting program. Um, 
Like I'm more of if if the choice was to watch a high quality game of rugby league or sevens, I'd watch rugby league. Like I'm not the biggest sevens fan, uh, but considering where Nusafora started with the program, but when we started, you know, it's it's he he's gone from European Division C to core group member in five years. When I say he has, Billy Dardis and and the rest of the Irish lads have. Um, and it's it's been you know very successful. Now there's the, the downside to that is something we'll touch on another time. Is that like these lads are getting paid less than the minimum wage? You know it is not. It's not without its drawbacks, but um, in terms of progressing players as a development tool, which he says, which News Four has been at pains to stress, that's why they're paid so lowly. It's the development equivalent to a development contract. It's a development tool. Uh, it has been really effective. So it's, um, you know, it's it's interesting to consider now that they're going into the top level of uh, of Sevens Rugby, whether or not they can still maintain pushing players into the system quickly and out after 18 months, or whether they're going to need to focus more on Sevens-only players. Rather than turning over their squad every like like it's like it's age grade stuff basically. Leinster's upcoming match, two matches are uh, away and then home against Northampton, who I think are still top of the mm. uh, the Premiership. Um, you would sort of see, it, it would sort of seem then that like next week is the stiffest challenge Leinster are going to face yeah. this year, given Northampton sort of have a more rounded uh, profile in. European rugby than Leon do, let's say. Absolutely. Um, certainly, Northampton are a very, very different side under Will Boyd than they were under under any of Malander's uh, teams. Uh, I think we'll all remember there was an occasion in 2014 or 15 when Leinster got a great win over Northampton in Franklin's Gardens and came back and, uh, and got beaten in Lansdowne Road. Uh, George North was played at 13 we talked about this previously Samu Manoa had a blinder as did Dylan Hartley in the return game so those two results were real they were outlandish um, because Leinster's win over in Franklin's Gardens was so massive and you know frankly Northampton's win over uh, over in in Lansdowne Road was very convincing in its own right Mm. they were unusual games Uh, Northampton are they're um, they're impressive. You know, I saw them play. Leicester aren't the team that they were previously. That's no news. But they are you know, very um, very convincing. I think with 34, 36, 17 win over uh, Leicester last last weekend, which I watched and um, there was only really one side in it for the last half hour. Leicester really folded up their tent, it should be said. Mm. I'm not sure uh, how much longer that they're going to stick with Jordy Murphy as a coach. Considering that we all, like you would have, you, you put a, quite a bit of significance on that Glasgow uh, away win and the strength of their team. I'm sort of just angling around this or tiptoeing around this idea that who's going to beat Leinster? I mean, it's, it's not really uh, a thing that like rugby teams do to go, unbeaten for entire seasons and I'm sure it's not really their aim either yeah you see I think for example going on what how Leo Cullen and Stuart Lancaster selected their side to play Munster in Christmas last year more or less a full side uh, and didn't get a result whereas in previous seasons they've sent down more half and half I think that they'd be tempted to go and not set out a Heineken Cup type team against Munster and that's you know any any game in, in Thome Park is you know a really tricky game so I think that's who could who could uh, knock Leinster off before the end of the this 2019 oh yeah I'd certainly expect Munster to if not beat give Leinster Munster and Ulster I would expect to give Leinster their hardest matches 
Surely, purely out of uh, familiarity, breeding contempt. They're, both sides both are good well teams. coached, good good players, and well coached sides. And they're both matches, and they're both really tough home venues, you know, for any visiting side to go to. Yeah. And there, there isn't there isn't the same fear. Like there isn't is there a fear factor? There's pretty arguably no fear factor uh, for Munster and Ulster playing against Leinster. Like it's it's an opportunity to get a shot on so many guys. I suppose like from Simon Easterby has sixty something caps for Ireland and has no provincial allegiance. Andy Farrell is coming in. His last job is in the RFU. He was never involved in the Irish setup before that. He's coming as defence coach. He has no provincial allegiance. So, you know, it, it it's a very different setup from the last two Irish coaches. Like Eddie O'Sullivan was coming from Cork and having coached, having played in Limerick. You know, he's from y'all. Played in Limerick coached uh, Connacht um, as well as Rock. So, you know, it was sort of hard to nail Eddie down. But, like, you know, I think Leinster would have gone kidneys, Munster biased, and Munster would have gone Schmidt is Leinster biased. There isn't going to be that with Farrell. So you're really just looking at who who the incumbents are on that team. Can I knock them off? Can I, you know, it's like, they're like trial matches. Aside from having league points available aside from you know playing in your own patch as well um <clears throat> you also mentioned ulster there as being an, a very an opponent that lancer should be very wary of uh i think it's worth noting probably how far they've come in the space of the last 12 months considering i think around this time last year we we're all wondering how seriously they should take their uh hanging cup campaign yeah and uh, instead of now we've got the, the situation where they're two from two in their in their in their hunting cup campaign um and have knocked off the very tough game of Claremont at home. Um any thoughts on how far how far McFarland can take them? I think I think their their progress isn't that good this season. I think they're not playing uh, particularly well. Uh and huge, they made huge strides, way bigger strides than I thought they could possibly make last season. Um, maybe, maybe that was they're making up some easy ground then, but uh, they haven't been, they haven't impressed me that much this season. Certain players have been great. Cooney's obviously been outstanding, being certainly the best scrum half in Ireland, one of the best backs. Um, but when, um, you know, I, I, I think that they're going to miss Bestie an awful lot. I, not like who knows about Hendo? Like who knows what, what sort of performance he's going to put in on any given day? Sometimes he's great, and sometimes he's uh, just a, an average sort of player. I've been impressed with Will Addison, who's now going to miss four weeks. I think he's been their best back. I don't think McCluskey is playing as well this season as he did last season. So no, I, I actually don't think Ulster. I think Ulster have been were very fortunate that Claremont were totally shit when they turned up at Ravenhill. Um, you know, still you have to get the win, but they haven't impressed me that much. I think Sam Carter's been good. He's injured again, um, and like Marty has been very good as as Tidehead, but. No, I'm not. I'm not as I'm not as high on on Ulster at all as I was last season, and or at the end of last season, famous famously last season, I said they should concentrate on the league. Um, but I think that he, my friend's a super coach, and he's put in a lot of uh, a lot of uh, legwork and sorry, spade work. And now, if it's a season of consolidation of the ground they made up. Last season, I think that would be, you know, satisfactory. I'm a bit more taken with Ulster in that I felt the last season, McFarland was particularly at the beginning. He he told them like we we want to move the ball, we want to play a very expansive, one of very skills based, fitness based game, and I think this surpassed expectations so that they gave Leinster a really good rattle, but they lost, and then they got to a semi final against Glasgow and they got absolutely annihilated and. Mentally, whether it was too far past, so I, I'd be far more positive on Ulster's progress this season because I 
kind of I like that idea of building towards something in a season. So like if you the, the idea that you can grind out results at at this stage and peak later. So if I mm. think of teams, two teams that spring to mind, Wasps spring to mind. Wasps used to be lousy at this stage of the season, um, and you know, uh, focus all their strength and conditioning work towards peaking at the end. And Munster in, I think it was 08, 09, started off like a train. They looked absolutely brilliant at the outset and they just couldn't sustain it. Mm. Um, they peaked in their quarter final against the Ospreys that year. Jesus. Yeah. yeah. But it might have even been, I mean, they, they demolished Leinster in a league match. Yeah. I think those matches were, I think they were back to back actually. It's 22 6. I was down in Tomlin for that one. And then the Ospreys one was like, they put 40 points in the Ospreys. And like, that was a savage Ospreys. It's a different season. It was earlier in the season. Like, they looked absolutely like, you know, sort of first few rounds of the Heineken Cup. And when they, they nil Leinster in the RDS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that, so like, it's just, it's, it's really, really, nil, sorry. It's, it's really hard to sustain that sort of performance all the way through. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the Ospreys and Ulsterman, uh, Alan Clark has gone from the Ospreys. Officially. Um, he's, that's officially gone, as per my notes. Yeah, I haven't gone. I, I just don't know how he left. I just have Clark leaves Ospreys was, was what yeah. I read. So I wasn't sure. Was he fired? Was it mutual consent? Um, I was kind of surprised he lasted as, as long as he did. Um, I was never particularly impressed. Uh, I... And Mike Ruddock has gone in. So we, we were chatting about uh, we were chatting about Irish managers and Mike Ruddock being a potential candidate. And Paul Dean has has uh, stepped down from his role as the manager. So, but but Ruddock has been appointed as the interim coach or sorry rugby consultant. So like yeah, he hasn't been given a permanent role. So like Ruddock coached Swansea at the inception of uh, professionalism. professionalism. So and he gave a really good interview uh, about it last season. But like that's nearly twenty five years ago. Um, so I like you know Mike Ruddock played for Swansea. He's he's gone back to Swan, you know the Ospreys who were the neat Swansea amalgamation. Um, and Do you think that's a good move for? Him? I think it's a heartfelt move. Okay, you think he's doing it out of loyalty? Yeah. Okay. I think. Yeah. Like uh, uh, I th- at, th- at this stage, like his his professional aspirations, like he's coached Wales to a Grand Slam. He's coached, like he, he's now a professional rugby coach. So he takes gigs where he's going to get paid in environments that he likes. Mm. And I would say that the Ospreys are the team closest to his heart bar the team that his kids are playing for. Mm. I think it's a tough gig. Like the Ospreys were in a position at the end of last season when there was really serious talk of amalgamation and the Ospreys not existing anymore. You know, need to have gone essentially down to Swanee. As, uh, certainly they were in that position at the end of last season. And I think that there's real existential doubt hanging over that whole organization. The Ospreys used to be a, at the, at the you know, what do they call them? What was their Australia? During the, you know, the Australian sort of era with Jerry Collins, Marty Holla, uh, Gavin Henson was there, Hook, Bigger, Shane Williams, Tommy Bow. They were an outstanding side. He's the big ginger Mary fella as well that used to have. No, he played no, for that was Paul Tito. Tito yeah, for Cardiff. <laughs> uh, but they had Philo Tia Tia, you know, uh, who'd probably turn out for him now if he was selected. Um, but I, I look at the Osprey side with Alan Wynne Jones still nominally. Like, Alan Wynne Jones is an Osprey and will probably be an Osprey. Until until his retirement, but he, he can't play for them very often, and um, they're they're in rag order. That whole organization is in rag order. Well, I, I suppose that leads on to the the well, the talking point. Yeah, so that was uh, their chairman Rob Davies, uh, the Ospreys chairman, that is, who spilled the beans. It seems like where he was openly talking of a British and Irish league mm. to launch in the 2022-23 season. 
2022-2023 season. Easy for you to say. Um, the reason being that CVC, uh, who have already bought a large stake in the, the Gallagher Premiership, are currently buying a stake or have already bought a stake in Pro 14. Bought a stake and are no, still negotiating in the Six Nations. So yeah, still negotiating to buy a stake in the Six Nations. Um, one has to imagine that their interest in all those three things uh, is in view of like taking control of Northern Hemisphere. Taking back control, so to speak. Taking control of Northern Hemisphere rugby uh, to, I guess, marry it to a bigger viewing public and to make more money off and sell it to someone. Mm -hmm. They did with the F1. Um, The point that Rob Davies of the Ospreys made was that all of the TV contracts for the, uh, the existing TV contracts for the Gallagher Premiership and the Pro 14 all wind up in the same summer of 2022. Um, So is this guy talking out of school or is he just, is this just a reality that we're all going to sort of come to realize is going to happen? Well, he's in a far better position to speculate than we are. Um, Well, he's in exactly the same position as us to speculate, but he probably knows more. I don't know how that'll pan out. To me, it, it seems at the moment that the Welsh clubs that have never been particularly happy with any iteration of the Celtic League or Pro 12 or Pro 14, whereas it suits the Irish provinces down to the ground. It enables Irish rugby to essentially um, to essentially field sort of six teams, six competitive teams, I wrote about this a, a number of years ago in just the amount of game time that the sort of second choice players from Munster and Leinster are afforded because of um, the player welfare system afforded to the internationals. So our, uh, especially Leinster and Munster's sort of second string players, normally second string players get a lot of game time in the Pro 14 and that enables them to you know, in some cases push for international contention, in other cases just advance their careers quicker than it would if, you know, they were forced to, if if their first choice players are being selected week in, week out, like they are in the premiership. Uh, so I don't think, I think that the status quo suits Irish rugby really well. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the union is always going to want to increase its income um, because they've got a lot of overheads. The international game pays for an awful lot. And if the club game starts paying more for itself, it means that there's more money to grow the sport from the grassroots to improve women's rugby, to improve the sevens, to improve everything. So there is a strong uh, financial uh, opportunity there. So there's no, there's a, there is an opportunity there to increase the finances, and that's not something the union the union is a, is a you know practices careful husbandry of its finances, and always looks at the the bottom line and the books. Yeah, that that that's one of the items that I was wondering about myself because I don't think this is anything really to do with the unions. Like the it is sorry, it is because the unions are the other shareholders. This is about professional rugby. So from the inception of professional rugby in Ireland, Scotland, Wales, the the unions ran sort of centralized or franchise teams. So whereas in England and France, you've had this dichotomy between the national and the clubs, which are private interests against the against the unions. And you look at England last year and the sorry, not England, look at the RFU last year and the amount of money that got spent in professional rugby as a percentage of revenue compared to what got spent on grassroots rugby. And it was skewed towards professional rugby. And I think this is like this is about professional rugby. This isn't about like growing the game as it is. And and this is kind of the thing. So I think CBC will do a good job for professional rugby in that they'll bang heads and they will, what's the word to use? Like they'll sort of use leverage, they'll use the negotiating power that they've bought. I mean, 
What they did in F1 was that they bought like th- their shares had more voting rights. I think what they're going to what I think probably what they've I'm, I'm interested in what they've got in buying the stake in the Gallagher Premiership, buying the stake in the in the Pro 14 because they're buying in, into the leagues. And th- are they buying certain aspects where they just have absolute control or where they've got the majority stake? And it's going to be in the sort of the commercial and the marketing and the negotiation of broadcasting rights. And that's going to determine how much money is going to come in because they're going to be saying, well, we can play we can play the, the British and Irish League now. So, or, you know, whatever it is, I'm not sure what's going to happen to the Italian teams, but I'd imagine because they bought the league, the Italian teams are going to be introduced. So whatever it is, like two, um, two conferences f- with representation from five countries and... The broadcast deal is going to be amalgamated. And like the broadcast deal in in certainly my head is you're going to sell it to a Sky or a BT, but that might be the model at all. Like they, they might decide to do their own broadcasting where there's some sort of direct revenue pay from streaming matches live and you can watch a highlights package and like stuff that I just don't realize. But I do know that I spend a lot more time watching YouTube than I did in previous years, like I've a bit of time, I sort of go, uh, like if I've got stuff recorded, I might watch it, but my go-to would be YouTube. And I don't watch any live TV bar sport, but I probably record that so I can just zip through the ads and because, you know, my, my time isn't as flexible. So like, and I'm in my forties. Like if, if you're in your teens and in your twenties, there's, I've no doubt you consume media differently than I do. So it's all TikTok it is, these days. It's all, I don't even know what TikTok is. <laughs> And the, but I think, I think, I think it's going to go from that angle. So look, I, I think what Davies is saying, it's in, like, it's not quite off the cuff. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think anybody surprised him, but he was just, it was the kind of the certainty that he said it with it. He goes, like, this is a done deal. This is a no brainer. Like, there's no way that these guys are lining up stakes. It doesn't make any sense for CVC to buy a minority stake in the English premiership just to get access to the English Premiership because it's just not worth it. It doesn't stack up. But if you buy a minority stake with power over certain aspects of the English Premiership and you do the same for the Pro 14 and you do the same for the Six Nations, then all of a sudden you can get a streamlined product of professional rugby because the unions have been running it and the unions have a larger mandate than professional rugby. And that's that's the split. And that... And this split was always waiting to happen from the inception of professionals. It's just a matter of like when was it going to happen? So like you're going to see you're going to see ring fence professional game. It's just going to be franchises. Like even the Premiership is owned by thirteen clubs. They have this sort of idea of oh, it's the threat of relegation that means we're not as competitive in Europe. It's the you know the threat of relegation that makes the league better. It's the promise of promotion. But a club like London Welsh gets promoted, and like they've no interest in having them in the premiership, they gave out about the grounds. And then when they get promoted, they just want them down. Like, you know, they, they get kicked out. Like it's not, it, it's the English pay credit to it by mouth, but like they don't want it. There's 13 clubs on premiership rugby and that'll just get ring fenced. And then there's, there's franchises in Ireland and I, I don't know how much it will, it will affect the Irish game. Like what I was wondering was will guys who play in the league be eligible to play for Ireland if you're all on the same timetable? And I thought of Tyke Byrne and I went, no, like, Gareth, if you will stick to the run written policy of only picking guys who play for Irish clubs. Now, to date, what's happened is that it's been really the sort of the high profile guys that have left that have caused the most clamor. And Ty Byrne, again, he's the first example of a fella who like who was unheralded when he left and then played really well. And you're going, oh, we should be picking him. But I think that'll happen more and more. Like if, if particularly if, if Irish guys are playing against English clubs, that English clubs will go, Jesus, like that Will Connors guy is really good. Like we'll sign. If Leinster aren't going to give him like an absolute full-time contract, we'll just sign. We'll just throw a load of wedge at him. Mm. And again, we talked about the demographics. There's going to be more and more Irish guys coming through. And like just those guys will end up playing for around around that BNI league. Like I, I personally think I, I think it'll happen. Um but the other thing is it'll happen for the Welsh as well, because the Welsh churn out good under twenty team after good under twenty team. 
put whatever their transmission mechanism is into full adult rugby at a club and rep level. It just hasn't worked. But if there is one thing that Welsh clubs want to do, it's play against the English. In fact, that's the only thing they want to do. They have no interest in a Pro 14. Like they've, with, with the exception of the Ospreys, who won, what, three in five years? Is mm-hmm. that right? Um, and the a few Scarlets, who sort of briefly rallied and have been the most, see that, that that's half you'd sort of go. But like, they've been rare peaks in what has been a preponderance of valleys for Welsh regional rugby. Um, oh, very nice. So, you, whereas you play against the English and you go, it's, it's a different ball game for the Welsh. That's why they have that weird Anglo-Welsh Cup Anglo-Welsh thing. Anglo-Welsh yeah. Cup. Like. I mean, to me, it certainly seems to solve <clears throat> a lot of problems uh, in that instead of playing in three competitions, you'd presumably only be playing in one competition. The Anglo, like the, they're not going to call it the Anglo-Irish League or the British and Irish League. They'll get a better name. They'll sell the name to someone else. The Barclays, for example. Um, but you're only going to be playing in that competition. There's not going to be any more Heineken Cup. Because no, you'd have to think that what's, what would be the point? Be gone. What's the point? And then <clears throat> you have everyone on the same timetable and presumably seeing a CVC uh are buying or attempting to buy a stake in the Six Nations as well, they would be sort of going, this is an international break while the big international product is on, which we also have an interest in rather than having them all. So they just arrange the league from September through, would they have a break in November, do you think, for internationals? It's hard to tell at this stage because it's all hypothetical. But I, this this is just would be my hunch about it that um, they you know it, it it the whole thing would be just one one rugby product that's this league and that's and they would be pitching it against the top couture's and so we'll go whether, whether that has Italian teams in it or whether I, I don't know yeah I, I think it'll have Italian teams because Italian teams are in the league and they bought the Pro Fourteen but uh, like I don't think it's gonna look to bump up the number of Italian teams to four or five. Like, I think it's more likely to go to one. Um, and I think there's going to be free weekends so they can play matches. Like, there might be some sort of challenge tournament against the French uh, top 14 teams where, like, there's quarterfinals, semifinals, finals, or there's semifinals, or there's a pool, or something like that. But like, there'll, be, there'll be some element with the top 14 because there'll be a massive appetite and there'll be some element with the Southern Hemisphere because there'll be a massive appetite of when the crossover is that the the champions of British and Irish play the champions of Super Rugby to see who the World Club champions are. Now, like CBC haven't gone down the Southern Hemisphere, but I think once you get to a coordinated season and once you get to professionalism and once you get to a stage where like your broadcasting rights are very well defined, then you kind of go... What will draw the most eyeballs? Like, what what what's the most appealing? Yeah, that we can present on a on a consistent basis. Well, I've I've missed rugby in uh, I've missed international rugby in November. I feel like this November it's been dreadful weather wise, which I can't get past it. But um, maybe I said this two weeks ago. I can't remember. But the way that the rugby has colonized two of the worst months. Of, of the year weather-wise and in terms of little other sporting action November and February are international rugby months you know I, I think that any reorganization of the calendar is going to have to leave those months in situ as international rugby yeah I don't I, I, I definitely think certainly the Six Nations is immovable at this stage um, but I don't know about the November um, Do you think that might die a death? November Test Series? It always seems a bit more like boxing in that it's just randomly organized between different, like, sort yes, of slightly yeah, chaotic organizations. Yeah. Um, and, like, you know, the way some teams will, like, try and stick in an extra fifth game to raise a bit of cash yeah. and then play it outside the window. So, like, they're limited, you know, limited selection, selection yeah. um, because certain players might be going back to their clubs or not released from their clubs or what. However, it might so work. So it might be, I'm just trying to think of how the season might work. It might be that the British and Irish League runs from September all the way through to the end of January. And then there's 
an international break for two months or a month and a half from the start of February to the middle of March. And then you get into the denouement, say two weeks at the end of March, at the end of the regular season, and then playoffs. And then, and then a world club championship at the first week in June, say. Yeah, I think it's hard to see a situation where the players aren't flogged. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I also imagine the Italians going off to join the French league where they oh, just... Oh, would you think so? Where they allowed a designated gouger in their teams. C'est l'homme pour la fourchette. Yeah, no, I, I, I struggle to see... Uh, the English having any interest in playing an Italian club at all, at all, whatsoever. Yeah, now that you mentioned that, it seems plausible to me, except for the fact that the the, the Bouclier and the top 14 is such a strong yeah. emblematic league in its own right. Mm. It's such a symbol of France that they will just go, well, then we might do you a favor and let you play in the Brody Dub, but you can't compete for the bootleg. You're not French. Yeah. I mean, I just see the Italians getting squeezed by it, really, because I know there's the, like it's a big country with a lot of people, and that could mean something potentially in terms of how they market the uh, yeah, television, t- deal, television yeah. rights. I just, um, like, if the. Welsh aren't interested in playing against Irish teams. They're fucking not interested in playing against Italian teams, you know? Well, I think, funny, en- funnily enough, I think the Irish, uh, the IRFU and the Irish provinces are really important to the success of any of these. Um, I Obviously, I have an Irish-centric view, but... Um, there's no doubt that Irish fans travel, go to loads of games and are enthusiastic about whatever tournament they're in. There's um, there's far more respect and um, enjoyment and crowds going to the top 14 in 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 every Irish province than there are in, in either Wales or Italy or Scotland or South Africa. Mm. Uh, and while Ireland isn't a doesn't have a lot of chimneys for example um it's it's teams are very very vibrant very strong yeah it certainly feels like the big four like uh, narrative tales of the Heineken Cup era are Leinster probably the last one and before them uh, Munster Leicester and Toulouse yeah well you, you know the the English how the premiership had could have had Welsh teams in at any time they wanted, and they didn't fucking want them. Um, I, I found it interesting that you had the, you had talked about the kind of uh, disarray going on with Ospreys, sort of where we started off with this conversation, and I thought it was interesting that it was the Ospreys chairman who was sort of getting his oar in first and being like, <laughs> yeah. we'd love to be one of the teams in this. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, where, yeah, and I mean, do, do could, you think- could you foresee it even being... Rather than Ospreys, it being Neath and Swansea in this tournament. No, no, no. no. Just, just, you just, you go back to the chimneys. You go back to the idea viable, no. of you go back to the idea of population centres, and Wales have made their decision to go with the four regions, and it's it's while it's not impossible, it's really hard to see them reversing out of that. Yeah. Um, but maybe then more likely they would go and revisit the Colwyn Bay idea or something like that. We're doing a lot of hypotheticals here, I know. Yeah, I don't think that there's any particular room or scope for growth in Welsh rugby at the moment. I think that they are struggling with uh, with what they have. It would make more sense to me if there was if there was a uh, one fewer Welsh side. To be honest. Um, and that their talent wasn't spread around as as thinly as it is. Uh, but you could say to say, like the, the idea of of a franchise system in England is is interesting. You know that that they would look at the geography of England and say, well, these are where the population centres are. This is where our teams are going to be. If 
if you take, for example, the way that has happened in American football and baseball, that the franchise moves. I think that's kind of happened in English rugby by happy coincident, by default, or by like inevitability. But I mean, Newcastle are in it, mm. Sale are in it, um, and then you've like Exeter are in it, which is, I would say, one of the like the real Southwest. And then you know, you've got Gloucester, you've got Bath, you've got Leicester, Northampton. You've got Was Saracens, London Irish, you know, like all. Mm. So, like, I think you think, you I think, think it's think right it for yeah, ring fencing now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the Premiership rugby clubs, like the thirteen that are in that, uh, are it, it, it's a really good spread for England. So, do you have any idea when there is going to be any sort of announcement from CVC? What do you think? What do you think the timeline would be? Oh, I think what I think what uh, Davey said. I think the twenty twenty two, when the TV deals expire, um, so CBC have their Premiership stake. They're agreed in principle with the Pro fourteen. I, I have to confess, I didn't. I, I'm not sure how far down the road they are of the Six Nations, but from what I've heard from other people, they seem to be far. Like just another broadcast, they seem to be further down than I was aware of. Mm-hmm. And I think that gives them sufficient time for 2022 to just say, look, this is this is the way it's going to be. Yeah. Three, six, nine, damn, 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 damn,